Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and with me today actually will be special guest slash returning champion Jamie from Old Shipping Lines on YouTube. Uh, but before we get started, we have a few new patrons we'd like to thank. So I want to give a shout out to Liv and Jordan. Thank you both so much for choosing to support us on Patreon. We hope you enjoy the back catalog of bonus episodes, uh, and you can look forward to a lot more bonus content in Season 3. So with that, I will bring in Jamie. Jamie, how's it going? It's been going extremely well these uh, couple of days. Things are going well. Got a lot of uh, things done with my life, with studying and future uh, grown-up stuff, if you would like to call it. Right. Uh, as well with uh, shipping stuff. It's been, it's been going excellent, really. It's been going very well. We last uh, talked to you in episode 70, uh, yes. back, in, back in August of 2022. We talked about the Soviet liner Admiral Nakimov, and uh, it's been a while. So if you just want to, I don't know, reintroduce yourself and uh, maybe also old shipping lines... Uh, so, hello everybody. My name is uh, is Jamie. I'm an uh, Italian who lives uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, I am the owner of the YouTube channel Old Shipping Lines. What I basically do with my content is uh, I talk about ships. Uh, for example, of course, Titanic, uh, Lusitania. But uh, I also shed light or a little on a little bit uh, of the lesser known ships. For example, uh, the Admiral Akimov the SS Yarmouth Castle, and uh, ships like that. So yeah, this that is what I do. I think one, one of the great things about your channel is that you just put out so much stuff. <laughs> um, very consistent. I very recently, I really enjoyed the video about the Cal shot that you did. Yeah. Because that was one that maybe I'd heard the name, but I didn't know much about it. Yeah. And it's cool to see even... Even the ships like the the tenders, the ones that don't really get as many of the headlines have really cool stories. Um, yeah. And in the, in the Cal shots case, a very long story Yeah. Um, up until what was it last year? I think she was finally scrapped. Sadly. Yeah. It's a great channel. Definitely check it out. Uh, if you are on YouTube, I think everyone is in some capacity, uh, but yeah, definitely check out old shipping lines. Very enjoyable stuff. If you enjoy maritime stories, you know, similar to what we talk about here. With that, I guess we'll move into the next segment of the show. We we like to talk about what else are we doing uh, mm -hmm. outside of shipwrecks and maritime disasters. So, Jamie, what have you been up to? What have you been reading or watching, listening to, playing? Uh, recently, I've been studying very much to get my uh, to get my driving uh, license. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been taking up a, a lot of my time. Um, I've recently watched uh, for the fiftieth time. The movie Midway, the newest one. Oh, yeah. I'm. It's one of my favorites. Every time when I watch it, I highly enjoy it. Uh, with reading, I've been kind of lacking because uh, with studying, um, it's a little bit hard to keep the concentration to actually read a book. Mm -hmm. But uh, after I've done uh, getting my driver's license, I think uh, I will begin once again. I, I get that for sure. I get in strings where... It seems like all of the reading I do is stuff for the podcast, and mm. then I don't feel like reading other stuff. So, yeah. uh, so I'll get into into other things. So yeah, lately I am 
I'm watching a series called 1864. Mm-hmm. It's a Danish historical series, and it focuses on the Second Schleswig War. Uh, it's mostly in Danish, which I, I don't speak, um, <laughs> but it's also significant portions are in German. Um, mostly the parts showing Bismarck and von Moltke and Kaiser Wilhelm I. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really awesome series, and I actually I found it while I was reading about the Second Schleswig War because it came up in the biography I'm reading of Bismarck. And so I was reading about it, and I saw that there was this Danish historical series. It took me a while to find a place to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up having I'm I'm having to watch it through the PBS streaming app via Amazon. So I had to go through two little loops to find it, mm-hmm. uh, but definitely worth it. I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's Danish actors, so I don't know a lot of them. But the the one actor I did recognize is I believe his name is Pilu Asbeck. And listeners might remember him as Euron Greyjoy in Game of Thrones. He kind of plays a similar type of character uh, where he's sort of unhinged a little bit, but definitely a great acting performance. And I'm really enjoying the series. I'm looking forward to finishing that up. Mm -hmm. So with that, we will get into the topic that we are here to talk about, and that is the SS Vestris. Yes. So, the SS Vestris was owned by Liverpool, Brazil and River Plate Steam Navigation & Co. But she would be operated by Lamport & Holtline for service between New York and the River Plate. Um, and here I wanted to throw in a quick geography note. We're not the best with geography and it always helps to, to get a reminder. The River Plate, or in Spanish known as Rio de la Plata, It's in the southeastern portion of the South American continent. It's often referred to and mostly referred to as a river. But if you even just look at it on map, it looks it's more like an estuary because of how Mm. wide and fat it is. It doesn't really look like a river. The Argentinian capital of Buenos Aires is on the river plate, as is the Uruguayan capital of Montevideo. Also, soccer fans might recognize river plate due to the pretty famous Argentinian uh, soccer team or football club of the same name. The Vestris was built by the shipbuilders Workman, Clark and Company in Belfast in 1912. Now, if we talk about measurements, she had a gross tonnage of 10.494 gross tons, an overall length of 156 meters, and a beam of 18.44 meters. She had two four-cylinder quadruple expansion engines powering her twin screws, giving her a top speed of 15 knots, which is not extremely fast. As an ocean liner, she could carry 280 first-class passengers, 130 second-class passengers and 200 third-class passengers, with a crew of 250. She also had five cargo holds. In addition to the Vestris herself, she had two sister ships, the SS Van Dijk and the SS Vauban. I wanted to to, uh, jump in here and just comment on this is such an interesting mix of names for this yeah. family of ship. It's like 
you've got the Vestris, which this is this is the only one I didn't recognize, like mm-hmm. the the name. And I, I looked it up, and it's named after a family of dancers and and ballet performers. The Van Dyke, named after the the painter Anthony Van Dyke, mm. whose stuff I I really enjoy the uh, the English Civil War era. Mm-hmm. And so Van Dyke is very famous for his portraits of like Charles the First and and the the royal family. And so you've got a painter, a family of dancers, and then you've got Vauban, named after a military engineer. Um, who's How interesting. Like, who's like famous for for all of the forts that he designed. Yeah. And so I just think that's such a weird combination of things to name this family of ships after. As well that as well that uh, Van Dyke is such a typical Dutch name. Right, right. <laughs> it's such a typical Dutch name. Uh, the Vestres would be launched on May the 16th, 1912, receiving little notice because there was nothing unusual about her. It was a fairly typical for mixed passenger and cargo ships of the era. She did, however, boast some pretty features for a ship of her time, including electric lighting throughout and forced ventilation. Now, during World War I, the Vestris would see action as a troop ship carrying personnel from the USA to France. On January the 26th, 1918, she was nearly torpedoed in the English Channel while carrying medical personnel, but escaped uninjuredly. However, not all of her sisters had the same luck. The Van Dyke would actually be sunk quite early in the war, on October the 26th, 1914. She was intercepted by the German cruiser, the SMS Karlsruhe. I hope I said that correctly. While carrying mostly American passengers and a cargo of frozen meat. The passengers were transferred to another vessel and disembarked in Para, Brazil on November the 1st. The cargo of meat was taken by the Karlsruhe, after which the Van Dijk was sunk. Uh, it's really interesting here because we've we've talked s- several recent episodes about World War One, and we've had to talk about these cruiser rules. Mm. And in the context of Lusitania, we talked about them a lot with submarines and how submarines did, or in most cases, did not really fit into cruiser rules you just couldn't follow them the same way that you could with the surface ship so it's interesting here to see like what did that process look like in terms of stopping the ship taking the passengers off taking what you want from the cargo and then just sinking it yeah yeah interesting to see that happen here after the war ended the vestris and her remaining sister the vauban were charted to cunard line and entered into a triangular passenger service between New York and the River Plate, and Liverpool, a circuit that Vestris would complete six times in 1919. In September of 1919, with 150 people on board, Vestris experienced a fire in her coal bunkers, which took ultimately 10 days to fully extinguish. 
As the fire was being fought, the Vestris was escorted safely to St. Lucia by a Royal Navy vessel. And her passengers were housed in barracks, likely uncomfortable, but fortunately all alive. In 1922, the Vestris was charted out again to the Royal Mail Steam Packet Company as they awaited delivery of their new vessels. So now we shall actually move on to the incident. And this brings us to November the 10th, 1928. Vestris had left New York just before 4 p.m., bound for the River Plate, carrying 128 passengers and 198 crew. Something that's noted about the ship as she left New York is that her hatches were not fully battened and secured, and that her load line marks indicated that she was heavily overloaded. The the interesting part of this is that, you know, this is obviously not the first time we've talked about a ship that leaves port with her plimsoll line showing that she's definitely overloaded. And yeah. it, it goes back to something that we hark on a lot is that uh, safety is great. Guidelines are great, mm-hmm. but they don't do anything if you don't follow them. The following day, November the 11th, Vestris encountered a severe storm that caused her boat deck to be flooded and actually washed away two of her lifeboats. In the heavy seas, the cargo in her hold and the coal in her bunker began to shift, leading her to develop a starboard list. As the ship listed further, cargo shifted further as well. Around 7.30 p.m. that evening was struck by a particularly strong wave, causing her to lurch even more to starboard. The Vestris was taking water through her ash ejector pipe, coal bunker ports, and through some doors on the upper deck. She took water faster than her pumps could handle, and by the following morning, she was nearly on her beam's ends. I think that uh, the talking here, taking water through her ash ejector pipe, mm. and like I'm sure we've, I'm sure we've talked about stuff related to that on the show, but that's not a piece that I've ever heard of before. And that just sounds like the filthiest possible part of yeah. the ship. Like I assume someone has to clean that at some point, and like cleaning the ash ejector pipe sounds like the worst type of job. Yeah, I don't envy the person who had that job. <laughs> um. At 9.56 a.m. on November the 12th, Vestris sent out a SOS call, including her location, although this location was off by about 37 miles. The call was repeated at 11.04. Sometime between 11 and noon, the order was given by Captain William J. Carey to abandon ship and passengers and crew attempted to board lifeboats. At this point, the Vestris was about 200 miles off of Hampton Roads, Norfolk, Virginia. Now we say attempted, because most of these efforts were unsuccessful. With the significant starboard list, 
the portside lifeboats were attempted first. Top priority, as expected, went to the 37 women and 13 children on board. Very few lifeboats were able to be successfully loaded and released before the ship sank around 2 p.m. on November the 12th. Some of these boats were never freed from the davits and dragged their occupants down with them. Some lifeboats that were successfully loaded or launched were then crushed in the waves. One boat that was successfully launched was exceptionally unlucky as a David fell from the ship and smashed a hole in her when she was in the water, killing several of those in the boat. I I just I couldn't believe that last part um the first time I saw it because people fight and struggle just to get these boats in the water and you finally get one in the water and then like something I didn't even know could happen. Like I mm. didn't even know that a davit could detach and fall onto a boat and yeah. it does. And it's just like you, you can't win. And then with the others, of course, like we see the same issues that we have seen with any of the, any of our big ships that are putting out lifeboats. We saw it with Lusitania. It's, you know, it's, it's hard enough just to get them in the water. And then you've got to worry about getting away uh, from this big ship as it's going down. Even just the process of, of lowering these lifeboats and having to make sure that you're doing it evenly so you don't dump people in the water. It's just a crazy, hectic uh, sounding situation. As well as I would think if I was in a boat and you see the ship like listing so heavily, you feel kind of safe because you think, oh, yeah, I'm off. I'm mm-hmm. I'm OK. And then out of nowhere, hearing the David fall on top of you, because that gives noise, a piece of the ship's like breaks away. It must have been so scary to hear. And then out of nowhere, you look above and you see the thing like falling on right. top of you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 the kind of detail that we would we would always say, like, if you had that detail in a movie. Yeah. People would be like, oh, that that wouldn't happen. Like, yeah, that that, that can't happen. The more you know. It's known that there were still people on board the Vestris when she finally went down entirely. Among those still on board was her captain, Captain William J. Carey. He was reportedly last seen walking down the port side of the ship, saying, My God, my God, I am not to blame for this. That detail and the details of the lifeboats are reported in R.M. Williams' The Big Ships from 1956. Perhaps he knew that the ship was pretty much overloaded. That's why he said, I'm not to blame for this. I feel like there's there's so many ways you could you could sort of read that. You know, the yeah. as his, his ship is his ship is going down and he's seemingly, you know, walking the decks and, and you know, maybe he's muttering this, maybe he's yelling this, saying, you know, I'm I'm not to blame for this. Like is that because he he does feel guilty and he's he's trying to convince himself or for a lot of these captains you know the option was take the ship as it's loaded or find a new job so yeah, yeah i mean very very much so he he could be saying like you know i i did my job and this is not my fault <laughs> so yeah a liverpool echo article from 2013 gives further detail about William Carey. 
Captain Carey went down with his ship, but back home, his family were tormented by the false reports that he'd been saved. His wife, sons, and daughters gathered at their home in Victoria Road, Crosby, to await news. Reporters gathered there, too. Carey's son Matthew told reporters, I'm a little worried, naturally. Would the family have confidence in him? In fact, my mother told me that she only expected to be awakened if any definite news came through. She was a little anxious last night, but quite hopeful. Several British newspapers ran stories about Carrie being saved, causing family members to prematurely celebrate. Clint Oliver, who wrote a book called The Last Dance of the Vestris, says of Carrie, He emerges as the most tragic yet fascinating figure of the disaster. I think he was a model officer who just had an exceptionally bad couple of days. Because he died in the sinking, we'll never know what was going through his head as his beloved Vestris sank under him. There's no question he was under an extreme amount of pressure. Pressure most people will never experience. In the end, Carrie failed, and he gave up his life to make amends. There's also conflicting information about the ship's chief officer, Frank Johnson. Now, the Wikipedia page for the sinking notes that Vestris' chief officer did not survive. Later resources that mention him by name, such as The Last Dance of the Vestris, indicate that Johnson actually did survive the sinking. In that book, I, I, I haven't read the book, um, but uh, it does have a more... It has a more local focus, and it's mm. kind of focused on the fact that so many of these officers and crew were from the Liverpool area. And so it seems like that author did some some searching through the records and seeing, you know, who who was still here, who survived. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like at least the chief officer uh, managed to survive, but a lot of the other, you know, upper level crew did not. I know he talks about um, in that article, uh, he talks about, I want to say it was one of the engineers sort of staying behind to, to prevent uh, possible, you know, boiler explosions and, and making this mm -hmm. worse than it was. Um, so yeah, definitely I'll, I'll, I'm going to be trying to get a, get my hands on a, a copy of that. Cause yeah, I definitely love to see uh, what else there is about the Vestris. And then, you know, back to the kind of the last, the last line from that quote there about Carrie failed and he gave up his life to make amends. Yeah. I think that it, it highlights so much of that, that mentality from the time, you know, yeah. up to this point in the maritime trade. And, and even for people who aren't sailors or, or uh, ships officers, the idea that there's a certain set of people who, who essentially are not allowed to survive mm -hmm. the disaster, or at least you're not allowed to attempt to save yourself. If you happen to survive, oh, well, you're very lucky. Um, we talked about this with Lusitania and other and other things where you see passengers, you see male passengers specifically, seemingly afraid or reluctant to even be seen holding a life belt or a life vest. Um, and here, this idea that he makes a mistake, he loses his ship, and he feels what seems like this obligation to to go down with the ship, um, which is you know obviously very indicative of of the time period. Yeah, the first ship arrived on the scene around five point forty five p.m. that evening. Though more would arrive later that night and into the morning of the thirteenth. 
Among those ships was actually the SS Berlin, which would later be renamed the Admiral Nakimov. The battleship USS Wyoming would also take part. As I was reading this, uh, reading through the, the sources and everything, and I was reading about the rescue, uh, the SS Berlin arrived on scene. And I was thinking, like, why do I know that? <laughs> why, do, why do I know that ship? And then I realized, oh, this is, this is where Jamie originally mentioned the Vestris in yeah. the Admiral Nikimov uh, episode. The official inquiry into the loss of the Vestris arrived at a casualty count of 111 killed out of the 326 on board. Other sources gave a total number of 115 of these dead. 68 were passengers, with 60 passengers surviving the sinking. 43 of the dead were crew. And... 155 crew survived. 13 children and 33-37 women had been on board. None of the children survived the sinking, and only 10 of the 33 women survived. These 10 surviving women were two stewardesses and eight passengers. And for me personally, it was quite shocking hearing like not even one child survive. Just imagine like being, it's its such a young ch- young stage, of course, being a child, right? And then mm-hmm. subsequently losing your life so quick in, in, in a flash. It's, I don't know, it, it got me when I was reading the book a little bit emotional thinking uh, about it. And we've seen stories that were in, in a lot of the, the survivor accounts, you very much get the sense that here, you know, when, when you have fewer protocols and guidelines about what to do in the situation, you know, people, people just don't know what to do mm. with their, their child. We, we saw that uh, in one of the, the Lusitania. I think it was Charles Laureate who was helping a woman who had tried to basically put her child in her coat and then put a life belt around them and him mm. having to stop her and say like, that is not going to work. Yeah. Um, like you, you need to, you need to save yourself and then hold your, hold your child. So yeah, the extent to which, you know, h- how many of these, uh, of these parents on board probably died in the efforts to save their child. Yeah. And, e- and even with the, the high casualty rate among the women, there's a, I forget the authors of it, but there's a, there's a study that I was reading not too long ago and mm-hmm. it dealt with basically the the balance of of men versus women surviving shipwrecks over time mm-hmm. and sort of pointing out that pre modern survival equipment you have this massive disparity between adult male survivors versus women and children and then once we get into better more effective life saving it sort of takes the it takes the physical demands out of surviving the shipwreck. You know, you, you don't have to be a strong, healthy person to survive a shipwreck. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's more options available. But here, we're still in that era where, basically, if if you're not strong and athletic enough, you're probably not going to survive. Yeah, high casualty rates among women and children here is not unique in maritime disasters. In this case, some of the exploitation of these losses is due to the fact that this group was the first to get into the lifeboats, many of which were destroyed or sunk while being launched. 
I had never really thought of that connection before, but the fact that there's this expected rule of women and children first, because that's going to get them out of danger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from what we've seen in so many stories, that's actually one of the most dangerous places to be is, yeah. is in these lifeboats when they're being deployed in the middle of one of these disasters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at, at least some of that, you have some of these women and children being killed because they're the first ones in the lifeboats, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a, I guess it's a catch 22. It's kind of like there's, there's no good place to be as the ship's sinking. But something else here is, is because of the proximity to the United States, the sinking of the Vestris was picked up and reported pretty quickly by American press. And actually among those covering her loss was the amazing pioneering reporter, Lorena Hickok. And Hickok's story on the Vestris was actually the first ever by a woman to appear in the New York Times under her own byline. This story is noteworthy in several different fields, um, obviously from the maritime field, but also in the field of journalism. Hickok was a trailblazer in terms of like the kind of stories that women were, you know, quote unquote, allowed to cover. Um, You know, they were, you know, given kind of these soft, uh, if you want to call them, you know, feminine stories that, you know, they could quote unquote handle. And she's one of the first to really be getting these really heavy, you know, gritty stories. Another one that she was famous for covering was uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping uh, when Charles mm-hmm. Lindbergh's son was was kidnapped and murdered. And that was the kind of thing that like, well, women can't write about this kind of story. Uh, their fragile psyches can't handle it. But, you know, she was a trailblazer in the sense that she she was, you know, getting these stories and writing about them and, and becoming very well known for them. The press was highly critical of how the Vestris had been managed and operated. Among these criticisms, based on both survivor testimony and official investigations were that the vessel had been overloaded. The SOS call had been delayed. If you remember, the ship began to have serious problems at around 7.30pm on the 13th. The first SOS wasn't sent out until well into the following morning at nearly 10 o'clock. I couldn't believe that when I when I saw it of how long it takes for them to send the first SOS. Yeah. Um, and how long the ship is clearly in serious distress before they do it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it, and I guess I guess part of it has to be the fact that this is still relatively early in having that technology available. Mm-hmm. And so I guess protocols and best practices haven't really been established yet. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, you know, there's, there's kind of a much more codified expectation of when you get into this situation, you send an SOS or a Mayday. Whereas here, I'm assuming it's probably very dependent on the captain. Captain doesn't want to seem like he's panicking um, mm-hmm. and calling for aid too soon, but yeah, this is an enormous amount of time before, you know, anyone is notified of this. The problems we mentioned with the launching of lifeboats, outdated life preservers that had actually been banned on US flagged vessels. Lack of radio equipment on vessels in the area, not a criticism of the Vestris herself, but rather the industry overall. Being able to send out radio calls doesn't help if there's no one around that can listen. Which 
must also have been have very terrifying. I mean, if you would be if you would have been in the Marconi room, sending out the, those SOS calls and not receiving something back at least. Yeah, I th- I think that's a good point on almost on like an existential level. If you're this person, if you're the yeah. radio operator, desperately sending these things out and wondering, is anyone hearing this? Like, yeah. is, is anyone even getting this? Are, are we totally alone out here? Yeah. Lamport and Holt attempted to limit their liability for the sinking to just the value of the cargo on board. $90,000. On September the 17th, 1931, federal judge D.H. Goddard denied this attempt. Goddard's decisions allowed some 600 complaints to pursue lawsuits against the company, totaling $5 million. I'll share this on the Patreon as a public post. That decision, it went through, like most legal decisions, it went through a lot of appeals and and different steps and things. Um, But there is the full sort of uh, decision laid out. Uh, It's dated from May 24th, 1932. Very in-depth. And this is where a lot of the the known details of the sinking comes from, is from people's testimony during these legal proceedings. Um, It's a fascinating read. Far too detailed uh, for us to include all of it here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very interesting read to look at the legal aspects of this company trying to limit what they're responsible for, which I thought was like unsurprising for a company um, of the time. And even today, I think it would be unsurprising for a company to try this and say, well, mm-hmm. we're only responsible for, for losing the cargo. Yeah. Which is a very like callous way of looking at these things. But I, I feel like at least something like the right decision was made in in saying, no, you are also responsible for these 111, 115 people that lost their lives. Yeah. In addition to the human tragedy, the sinking had a devastating effect on Lamport and Holt financially, as bookings dropped considerably for the South American line. The line would be forced to halt these routes the following year in 1929. Of course, adding to the financial problems would be the onset of the Great Depression, leading to a worldwide drop in shipping and passenger services. Yeah, when I I saw that about like this kind of killed their South American line, but I think also it's just looking at the time, it's it's like... I feel like it almost wouldn't have mattered. Like if the Vesters yeah. had not sunk, would would people really be going on trips to South America in, you know, 1930? I mean, yeah. who who has the money for that? By 1935, Lamport and Holt had sold off almost half of their fleet, both cargo ships and passenger liners. Through the 20th century, they saw a slow recovery and would ultimately operate until 1991. Yeah, again, so many of these shipping companies and the ships themselves, they even after they sort of fall off the public uh, face, they, they always seem to operate for a really long time, longer than I, I figured they would. 
And also, uh, the sinking of the Vesters had a impact in the world of labor and politics, um, partly due to its influence on African-American political activist James W. Ford. So in the late 1920s, Ford was instrumental in the founding of the International Trade Union Committee of Negro Workers, whose goal was, quote, either to open the unions for black workers or, if this was not possible due to racial discrimination and barriers within the unions, to establish independent black trade unions. Um, So here I'm quoting from Holger Weiss in his book, A Global Radical Waterfront. Um, Continuing here. Ford had hitherto concentrated on trade union work in Chicago and had no reference to maritime transport workers. However, his ambition to embrace all black toilers made him aware of the plight of the black seamen. The trigger was a disaster at sea when the British passenger liner SS Vestris sank about 200 miles off the coast of Virginia on 12 November 1928, resulting in the loss of 111 people. The accident was due to a fatal neglect of security on board, and many of the drowned were black mariners. The disaster made headlines on both sides of the Atlantic, although it probably was Ford's article in the International Press Correspondence in January of 1929 that caught the attention of the leading comrades at the Comintern and RILU headquarters. Um, So we'll share that full reading from Vice on Patreon if you want to read all the details all the overlapping committees and organizations and unions, they get way too complicated. Communists love their acronyms and and organization mm-hmm. titles. So it gets all very, very confusing. But it was an interesting read. It was an aspect I had not thought of um, as maritime workers, sailors, as an aspect of the more global labor push around this time. Um, it's always interesting to see these these maritime stories that sort of grab our interests for various reasons. It's interesting to see them, the imprint that they have beyond just the people on the ship um, mm-hmm. or, you know, their relatives and their friends, but the impact that they can have on the wider world. That's, I mean, that's, that's kind of why we make the show is because we are interested in those reverberations and the imprint that these ships leave. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous aspects of the sinking of the Vestris is role that photography played in documenting her final moments. A member of the crew named Fred Hanson was able to use a vest pocket camera to capture images of the severely tilting deck as the ship was just about to make her final descent into the sea. The New York Daily News paid Hansen $1.200 for the photo. William Berchtold, writing in January 1939 issue of the North American Review, called it one of the greatest photos of all time. And I think I must agree. I I think I I agree also the detail of the picture itself. Yeah, um, for for a... A picture that is a picture that's so old and a picture that was obviously taken in a moment of uh, stress and, and probably a little bit of of panic. Mm-hmm. It's amazing the detail it shows. I mean, you can see people's faces. You can see expressions. Yeah. Um, you, you can you can almost get a sense of like, you know, what was this person saying in this moment? Who are they talking to? There's so much emotion 
in those images that Hansen's able to capture. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. Um, that quote from, from Burke told um, was in, it was in the journal, the North American review. And it's mm. from a, it's from an article called more fodder for photomaniacs. And the, the whole article is basically about how, the image has replaced the text as how people get news. And that's not totally a criticism on, on his part. He's, he's kind of saying this is a good thing because of images like this, as, as we say, a a picture is worth a thousand words. And this image is a perfect example of that. You could read a whole column about this sinking and not get the same emotion that you see in this one or, or these, these images. Mm Mm-hmm it's a fascinating part of history. The fact that this is captured so clearly on camera. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about photography, so I don't actually know like what kind of camera he was using. I read a little bit and I saw that like, I think the Leica one came out in like 1925. So I'm Mm -hmm. assuming he had something similar to that, but yeah, just amazing that you can capture that sort of image um, in, in a moment like this. Yeah. Such a moment. Yeah. I think for me with this one, uh, the the author that we referred to earlier, Clint, I, I don't mm. know how he pronounces his name. I don't know if Clint Olivier, maybe um, I'm going to go with that. I think he sums up the tragedy very well. Um, and this is in his in that Liverpool Echo article. And he says. What makes the Vestris disaster so sad is that the most vulnerable, all of the children and most of the women were lost as much as some people wax nostalgic Shipwrecks are not glamorous or romantic events, especially not this one. The Vestris's band didn't play Nearer My God to Thee. Instead, infants were crushed to death in front of their parents in broad daylight. There were no cigars and brandy at the end. Wives felt their husbands grasp them with their last bits of energy and then watched them drown as they floated away to their deaths. It must have been awful. Yeah, it's a it's a running theme on the show shipwreck for some reason has this romantic aspect to it uh when Mm -hmm. it's depicted uh whether it's on screen or in paintings and that's never been true that's never been the case it's it's like when we talk about uh it's like when we talk about war uh you know the way that war is depicted romantically in 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 the old days and then there's this sense that well now war is a dirty thing now war is an ugly thing and it's always been the case this has always been an ugly horrifying terrible thing and as as the author points out here this is no exception and this is uh, maybe even a more extreme example it's a very heavy story but it's it's one that i think certainly had its day where it was very famous uh, the way that it's discussed in these earlier sources it's discussed near to the same level of the titanic or lusitania uh, because of the impact it had and how visible it was in the press and it sort of has lost some of that shine, I guess, yeah. which is why I think it's cool that it, you have your channel um, where you talk about ships like this, um, ones that don't get the attention. And, you know, you have all these people whose whose story kind of ended on this day. Um, so I think it's interesting. Uh, I think it's great that we have people like you who are making content about uh, ships like this um, and and keeping those stories alive. I think that's that's something that you know we can do uh, as as people who discuss these these topics. Mm. Um, 
So yeah, I'm I'm glad that this is one that you you knew about and you you know brought up as as a topic to uh, to cover. I also have uh, the book like the last day, the last dance of the Empress. I actually have it in my in my bookshelf, mm-hmm. and I remember when I got to learn about the liner, I actually had to put the book down because I was like, so how would say it in English? Um, I was so grasped by by the part of the sinking herself with crushing lifeboats. I mean, the people mm-hmm. who survived is purely a miracle. Bringing in the facts again, like the ship is basically kind of falling apart. Uh, the davits falling, the storm, of course, the ships herself. Um, yeah, it's it's very tragic to say the least. For the most part, I would say, especially on on this show. It, it is specifically about the, the disaster side of things. So 99% of the time we are talking about a story that ends uh, tragically. And mm-hmm. th- there is, I think, a sense of that's even more so when the story has been largely overlooked or, yeah. or, or forgotten about. So, yeah, I mean, I think not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think mm-hmm. that's one of the good things that, you know, that we do, whether it's, uh, you know, you on YouTube or us mm-hmm. uh, on the podcast and, you know, the other people who are podcasting and talking and, and, you know, making videos about these types of things. I think at times it seems, well, this is just a hobby. This is just a fun thing that, that we do, but I think it does have a, a power and an impact of keeping these things alive and keeping people talking about them. Um, because yeah. they're they're great stories uh, that should be should be discussed. I agree, hundred percent, hundred percent. All right. Um, well, if that is all, I guess we are going to wrap up the story of the Vestris here. Yes. Um, so with that, I will just give one final thank you to Jamie for bringing up this topic, uh, coming on to uh, share your background knowledge about it, letting us discuss it a little bit, and uh, yeah, looking forward to sharing this one. Uh, I'll say definitely check out Jamie's YouTube channel at Old Shipping Lines. And with that, I guess we will sign off and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you all very much for listening.